and welcome to the Buzzcast, the official podcast of the Stinger Bee League, an unofficial but officially fun Killer Queen Black League. Well, Blake, we're back for another episode. Here we are, number 17, I understand. That's right, and we've got a amazing episode with an incredible special guest lined up for everyone today. Wow, Kyle, why don't you tell us about who our guest is? Our special guest, Blake, is, and I, I'm really, I'm really excited about this because this person is a very, a very dear friend of mine. And I know that on interviews and podcasts, they, they always, they always say that, uh, you know, oh, the, oh, the, our special guest is a good friend of mine. But like this time, it's really, really true. This is somebody I don't, I won't say how long I've known this person for, but let's just let me put it this way: we met over a 2400 baud modem. <laughs> wow! Just to put it in perspective. Our special guest is none other than Kim- Dr. Kimberly Vole. She's an indie developer. She's co-owner of Radio Games, and she's co-founder of the Fair Play Alliance. And we are going to tap into her incredible background and pick her brain about some things that are very relevant to Killer Queen Black. Most importantly, that very interesting space, Blake, that space where the communities of players and the developers that, uh, of the game, where that space where they overlap. Very cool. That sounds that sounds really interesting. Yeah, there's there's a lot to say. Kimberly is someone that's very well versed on a number of topics relevant to online play, community community development, uh, cooperative play, and creating uh, like safe spaces for people to uh, come into games and play them. So I'm really excited that she's here to speak to that because I think that's something that is, you know, a, an ongoing topic for the Killer Queen Black community, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Very, very relevant. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get there in just a moment. We'll bring her on. But uh, first, why don't we start by going over last week's Blake's, uh, last week's Blake's. Let's start by going over last week's Blake's. <laughs> Blake, let's start by going over last week's games. Okay. Uh, well, last week uh, we saw Snailed It winning in two straight sets over all the single lasers. Snailed It uh, domination of this season continues. Secondly, Bees Nuts eked out close to one very whole dunker, and the whole thing came down to the very last game in a five-game set. That it also featured three different queens by the very whole dunkers, mm-hmm. which was very cool to see. Yeah, and you know, I I just I just want to speak to snailed it and how they're doing the season because they are absolutely dominating they have about a 50 percent higher team kill to death ratio than their closest competitor they're basically top of the charts in uh in just about every statistical category uh in our league i i think maybe all the single lasers has uh, the edge just barely in kills per soldier minute, but otherwise it's pretty much been snailed it across all the offensive charts. Berry hole dunkers are there in the berry category. Bees nuts are of course uh, still doing their snailitary strategy, and so they're atop on snail. But in all the categories that, frankly, <laughs> the ones that really matter, snailed it is running away with it. It's wild. I would I would think it would be quite interesting to pair that to uh, Shaka's numbers after the end of season. Yeah, yeah. There, I think we're seeing two consecutive seasons where we're seeing one team walk away with uh, walk away with victory. I guess, like Possibly, walk away yeah, through the whole season. Anything, anything could happen in the the last week of regular season play or the playoffs. But but yeah, that's that's how it's feeling so far. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that's that's last week games. Where does that leave us in the standings, Blake? Not that I haven't completely alluded to it already. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, the standings, as we all know at this point, Snail that is at the top five wins and no losses. Bees Nuts is a second, three wins, two losses. And the Barry Hole Dunkers and all the single lasers are tied actually at one win and four losses. Oh, okay. So still some close play in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the pack. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So with that in mind, uh, how about next week? What are our matchups for next week? And how many how many weeks do we even have left in this season, Blake? This is the final week of regular season play. Oh my so goodness. Next, yeah, next week will be the playoffs. So Snailed has locked up first place at this point, but they are going to be playing Bees Nuts in the first match of the evening. And then the second matchup, will be Barry Hall Dunkers versus all the single ladies. And that one, there's plenty to play for because the winner of that one was third place. In- all right. Well, as you say, anything can happen in the playoffs, but I, I think the story has pretty much been written for this this particular regular season. The regular season, yes, yes, yes. But we'll see. We'll see about the playoffs. All right. Well, let's move on from the games and let's move on to this week's special guest uh like i said she is a game designer she's a researcher she's a programmer specializing in digital social dynamics and artificial intelligence she's been a principal designer at riot games she's been a professor of computing science and she is a co-founder of the fair play alliance please welcome to our show blake dr kimberly vole Wow, welcome. I'm a little little overawed at all that. That's that's quite cool. But yes, we're so happy to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. This is uh this is a really special opportunity. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to chat with you both. Yeah, great, great. So let's let's jump into it. Uh as you know, should I call you doctor or <laughs> um, whatever you like. You can call me Kim if if uh if that's cool. <laughs> All right, all right. Whatever I like, it's going to be Dr. Ben. Uh, as you know, Dr. <laughs> this podcast is dedicated to one city game called Killer Queen Black. Have you have you played Killer Queen Black yourself? And if so, what was your experience with it? I have, I have. I'll confess I've played a ton more of the original arcade games. I've played it a lot at events like PAX and GDC and arcades and whatnot um so that's that's probably what i have the most familiarity with but i've definitely played a bunch of killer queen black we were playing it with co-workers i think it's you know it's an obvious choice for a party game and uh, especially with the pandemic i think having that available has been has been great since snuggling up in an arcade cabinet is less enticing <laughs> these days <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure. Yeah, that's no, I mean, it, it's always exciting to me when we have people uh, around who have experience with the arcade game, uh, because, well, I'm mostly just because I'm jealous. There, is, there <laughs> isn't one anywhere near us here in Victoria, so yeah. I, one day I would like to play it. I've only did, ever did played you... it while traveling, sadly, but it is it is a lot of fun, and it's a great, it's a great way to reconnect with friends, too, because it's one of those things everyone can just jump into and breaks down barriers, and before you know it, it's just all sorts of chaotic ridiculousness happening. <laughs> Did you have a favorite position? Oh, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I tend to be pretty flexible. I sort of defer to whatever the team needs, or if there's a, a more or less experienced player, then I'll try to throw them in a role that makes the most sense and, and support. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I like I like them all. I think I like I think I like playing the queen the most, just because I tend to be more of a frontline person. <laughs> but... Fair enough. Fair enough. So 
Doctor, perhaps you could tell us about some of your own games. Sorry, I just love the doctor thing. You can tell us about some of your own games. What have been some of your favorite video game projects a part of? Gosh, I mean, I've been really lucky to work on a lot of, of different things. Plenty of things not worth talking about at all, but, you know, they've all been learning experiences. Uh, I think two highlights for me, probably on the indie side, would be a fantastic contraption for, for VR, which if you're not familiar with, it's a game where you have a limited palette, a set of, of objects, and you're trying to construct a contraption, ideally fantastically, that will convey an object from a starting point to an end point. And this originally existed as a 2D flash game, and we—I didn't work on the original one, but my my husband and, and close friends conceived of and built that game. Uh, but we decided that we wanted to bring something VR, and so the, the challenge ahead of us was to take a 2D flash game and reimagine it in in VR, you know, with full 3D presence, etc. So that was a lot of fun. It was a great learning experience. And I think then, you know, I I would be remiss on the AAA side not to talk about League of Legends. I spent several years at at Riot. I had the opportunity to work extensively on League. I also worked for a while on Valorant too. And just the opportunity to work on a game of that scale, you know, just like the audience size, the fandom, even the scale of, of the company, you know, so 25 people there. I think it was a really great learning experience. It was a chance to not to not to overinflate it, but you know, a chance to touch the world in a way. When you have a hundred million monthly active players, you know, that's that's terrifying <laughs> because every little thing you do is going to go out to a hundred million people and you know, you don't want to mess that up. There's a lot of responsibility and a lot of, of care in upholding the, the game as fans know it. But it was a it was a really awesome, awesome experience. And of course that was where I did a lot of my work player behavior and really had an opportunity to dig deep and start to come to a better understanding of not just why these these sorts of issues that we see in games and online spaces more generally were emerging, but the opportunities that we had as developers to leverage our craft to to change the way games were being made and thought about uh, to develop them in a manner that fostered healthier interactions and better player coexistence. Cool. That's a that is a tall task, I think. But <laughs> I, if anyone is up to it, I think probably <laughs> So very cool, very cool, and that's so. It's so neat that you you worked on a game of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Valorant has quickly grown to be one of the top esports games in the world. I mean, what an experience to have been involved. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like lots of amazing people. I I was just part of of a team, and you know, I'd be I I absolutely need to call out all of the the hard work of of those folks. But it was absolutely an honor to be to be present there and, and contributing to, to both of those those games and several other games that I can't talk about. <laughs> Maybe oh, one day. Sure. Yeah. NDA, NDA, sorry. <laughs> well, okay. So, you know, I don't think you really tend to see a lot of doctors of anything in the video game world. Off the top of my head, there's you and Dr. Mario. Um, <laughs> Wow, that is uh, that is a high high praise <laughs> to be placed in the likes I, I of the venerable Dr. Mario. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, I've I've been playing that actually on the Nintendo Online thing. It's it's a it's a great one. It's a great one. The original. It's fantastic. Okay, sorry, getting uh, getting off topic, but maybe you can tell us about your journey to becoming a doctor why that was important and uh, as a doctor of video games what are some of the topics of your research and what act today what are you looking at academically yeah yeah those are great questions so there's actually more of us these days than you might think with phds in the gaming industry i think there's been 
you know, a ton of growth, obviously, the industry is significantly bigger than, than it was 10 or so years ago. And I think the, the breadth of opportunities within the industry has grown quite a bit. And when you look at some of the, the fields in which we go a lot deeper now, you know, like looking at things in, in data and analytics, computer science, of course, psychology, cognitive science, I think there's a lot more opportunity at uh, particularly bigger companies where they're investing more into these spaces. Uh, so, you know, there's there's more opportunities than ever there were before. Uh, for me, I've, you know, uh, as Kyle said, we've known each other absolutely forever, and he knows this, you know, I've always been uh, obsessed with video games. They've always been a huge part of my life. When I was a kid, I was always making games and, and modding games and playing games and thinking about games, you know, they were very important to me. I think, though, I shared that uh, that idea that many of us do growing up is that games are a thing that you consume and enjoy and maybe you make in your spare time, but that notion of games as a career doesn't really get traction. It's not really something you're necessarily thinking of, like, I'm going to grow up and make video games. I think more so today, just because there's explicit schools you can go to. But, you know, back in the back in the 80s, that was not something that was, that was necessarily available. Uh, so I didn't really set out to be a game developer per se. I was just always really fascinated by AI and how brains work. So that was really the path I charted in school. And so I got an undergraduate degree in cognitive science, where I focused a lot on why we do things, you know, the motivations behind our actions, how we relate to one another, how we think, etc. And uh, my PhD was then in computer science, focusing on AI. So just all, all manner of different things in AI, but I did have a particular focus in machine learning. And so fast forward to, to today, you know, I, I went off, I did sort of a more traditional academic route, but I was doing a lot of advising on the side. And ultimately that led to uh, a couple opportunities in, in gaming. I was doing a lot of indie development. Like at that point, I'd figured I'd, I'd still continue to do indie stuff on the side and was pretty, pretty involved in the, the independent games community here in, in Vancouver. Uh, but ultimately, I was uh, I was headhunted by Riot and went down there to work on their their player behavior initiative. And so, for me, the the real focus of what I do and how I leverage my my academic background with my my career is kind of the the two the two forks, right? It's the AI and machine machine learning aspects and the cognitive science aspects. The machine learning side that is I've worked a lot on moderation systems, um, detection systems. So looking at text chat, uh, to a lesser extent voice chat, but increasingly more relevant today, and even just understanding behaviors in-game like from a mechanical perspective of what's going on in a game, and taking that and, and translating that into something that then we can make informed decisions about or get a temperature check on how the community is doing, etc. Or, you know, uh, unfortunately, as is necessary sometimes, take action on, on people in the community, bad actors in the community. And on the cognitive science side, it's sort of the, it's rounding that out with the, but why do these things happen. You know, I, I focus a lot on social dynamics or player dynamics and the challenges that we face as a digitized society. You know, everything from our seeming inability to get along online to more insidious things like misinformation, disinformation, uh, even things like extremism, grooming. So I study like how and why these things come about and then use that to improve how games are made, as well as legislation, education, public health, etc. Wow, fascinating. That's that's yeah, that's, that's so cool. So Kyle tells me that one of your areas of interest is in the realm of team-based or et cetera, inherently cooperative, yet also competitive. That sounds actually very familiar, the game that uh, we love and do our little podcast about here. Uh, how did the lessons learned in creating 
amazing cooperative experiences than to the world of sports? Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. I love that question. I mean, I think you know the the overarching question above it all is really how do we play well together in in digital spaces? You know, and I think when you take a look at a cooperative game, they have certain advantages as far as putting people on the same side. I mean, you know, as we know from experience, people don't always feel like they're on the same side or behave as they are. But generally speaking, that's the pretense of the of the experience, you know, or or certain games in certain settings, like you take a I, I always love this example, right? When you compare Animal Crossing to Dark Souls. You know, both phenomenal games for very different reasons and they give rise to very different atmospheres which you might imagine then drive different behavior patterns within those those respective games. And so understanding the kind of game that you that you have and the motivations of the players and the affordances and ways in which they gave rise to certain behavior patterns is a critical piece of, of what we do. And so with a competitive games game, you're obviously starting from a position of, of confrontation and competition, however friendly, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you're, yeah. you're acting against each other in some capacity. Uh, but really, I think at their heart, they boil down to a lot of the same sorts of problems. You know, we see things like impoverished communication in games. You know, we maybe we're, we're only able to type or if we are able to communicate via voice, you know, we're doing so in a situation where we're probably a little distracted by what's going on. We're not necessarily taking the time to sit down and have a fleshed out conversation about what's actually going on. So there's, you know, it's rife with misunderstanding. Uh, we combine different cultures with different backgrounds, who have different assumptions about what's being said or how it's being said, etc. And then, of course, we have a fundamental lack of trust between between strangers. You know, if you take a look at a lot of, of games, there's really not much that is done to build up a foundation of trust between strangers uh, within the game. You know, oftentimes it's a revolving door of of randos that you're that you're playing with. And if you have an opportunity to get to know people over time, then of course you you know, especially if you, any of the listeners have had that experience you can compare that to playing with randos and random players of course there's nothing fundamentally wrong with them they're probably wonderful folks it's just you don't have that shared experience and that that opportunity and we know that going into games uh, and anything as humans we need we need a few key ingredients we need repeat exposure hence the playing again together we need proximity i.e if you're not crossing paths at all then this is sort of a irrelevant point. Uh, you need reciprocity. So I, you know, if I hold up my hand for a high five and you somehow magically reach through the screen and high five me back, you have reciprocated that action. And that actually is a positive impact and, and reflects on the quality of a relationship. Like basically we bond a little bit in that, in that moment. Uh, we have uh, to have similarity, so enough in common that there is a grounding through which we communicate and relate to one another. And the obvious is like speaking the same language is, of course, important or being present in, in the same game and having that same experience. But you think about where this gets complicated, where you have different cultures or backgrounds coming together. There might be very different ways to interpret the same events or ways in which we talk that can lead to to friction. And then just, just relatedness, the degree to which we feel a connection to those around us. So all of those things are fundamental, regardless whether a game is is cooperative or or competitive. And with esports, it's the same principles. We just we just really expand out uh, in the sense of we're dealing with often a more public facing game. And we have to think about how not just within the game, but within the broader community and uh, events and competitive scene. You know, how are we actually as a as a company, as the media that covers the event, as the players, as the attendees, as the broader, you know, it just keeps rippling out. How are we all espousing the values that we want to see, not just in the game, but in the in the community? And I think that's where it gets really interesting because there's so many valuable touch points there that 
just historically we haven't really thought about from a lens of responsibility or opportunity to do things. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You bring up so many points there that resonate with me as a, not just a, a video game player in general, but also specifically as a Killer Queen Black player. And Blake, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I totally get what uh, Kimberly is saying, is, uh, saying about you know, the impoverished communication, because when we're trying to play in a league game, I cannot muster the ability to properly say anything other than like snail, 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 right? That's the, that's about the yeah. extent I can, I can do it. And yeah, we get together, you know, on a channel at the end of a set or a match and we go over things and we plan ahead, but boy, oh boy, is it challenging to communicate in the middle of a game. And that's with people that share a common vernacular, common set of values. I, the challenges to overcoming cultural differences in real time I, seem to me to be almost insurmountable. Well, and add to that too as well, the, the degree of resiliency or ability to keep your cool in high stress situations. Because let's face it, they are high stress, especially if you're playing competitively. And so I think understanding how what are the ways in which we as individuals can better keep our cool in those environments and and practice ways to not you know basically let our anger bubble up and, and affect others in in the moment and also thinking about how how we teach the next generation better skills for that as well and, and a, a better sense of responsibility for your own actions in those environments because these are you know i, I really don't like the distinction irl or in in real life uh, games are real life they are very much a part of of the way in which we interact and hang out with people today and we need to treat it with the same degree of care as if we were hanging out face to face with others as well Okay. I have so many more questions and I, I'm, I'm actually going to ask you a question in a bit uh, about the, the tools for addressing some of those things that you referred to, reciprocity, proximity, and so forth. Uh, but before, before we get there, uh, I want to shift the conversation to uh, your work around the Fair Play Alliance. And I think you've, you've hinted about some of these things here, but what would you describe as being the challenges in online gaming that precipitated the formation of the Fair Play Alliance? And, and then how would you say its principles are relevant to an online indie esport game like Killer Queen Black? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if folks are not familiar with the Fair Play Alliance, we are a coalition of now over 230 gaming companies from around the world. Uh, we're brought together to work on essentially changing how games are made for the better. So we focus on design methodology, community management, moderation, trust and safety, etc., all toward fostering healthier interactions, reducing disruptive and, and harmful behavior within games. Uh, we're not an advocacy group. There's some great groups out there that are doing excellent work there. Um, we're very specifically filling a gap in, in the industry. Uh, to your question about the, the genesis of the group, so we we were founded in 2017. It was myself and, and two others who were really just asking a lot of the same questions and, and working in a space that felt like, you know, there was so much opportunity here to be more 
fundamentally addressing the behavior patterns that we were seeing in games. That a lot of what we were seeing was either nothing, you know, going back to 2017, uh, I think a lot has changed in the subsequent five or so years. Uh, but there was either nothing happening or it was very much a mentality of just get the jerks out. If you get the jerks out of the game, then the community is great. It's healthy. It's fine. Uh, and that just wasn't what we were seeing. That didn't that didn't match with the the messy complexity that is the tapestry of humans, right? I mean, we we are not uh, we're not always perfect in our behavior. We don't always get along. We struggle. Even the best folks struggle to get along with some other folks. And when you're put in challenging situations, as we were just discussing, where we're not really they're not really optimal for having positive interactions, then things are naturally going to break down. And so if you subscribe to the just get the jerks out, quote unquote. Then uh, eventually you're just going to get rid of most of your player base, which is not really a good a good idea. And so we knew we needed to think about it differently. We needed to ask questions like, why is this happening? Why are these behavior patterns emerging? What is it about human nature and human behavior that, when introduced into these settings, is giving rise to these things? And then, as developers and as designers of these experiences, I mean, there's 40 plus years of game development experience where our entire mandate or entire goal is to build these experience and drive, you know, uh, fun experiences and uh, help players have a good time and increasingly a good time together as multiplayer games have become more popular. And so that's a skill set that when we bring that to bear on the question of, well, how do you play well together? There's, there's stuff there. And that was really where it started was we were we were doing a little bit of this work or pardon me we were doing a lot of this work in our respective jobs uh, but it wasn't necessarily something that had a ton of traction more broadly in in the industry uh, i was very lucky to be at riot where they have a a history and a significant investment in the space so i had you know, i think a little bit more uh, opportunity there as far as resources etc but many more companies didn't and so, you know, to make a long story longer, we reached out to the uh, the broader industry and just said, hey, is anyone interested in coming together to share practices? You know, like just let's do a community of practice for those of us working this this area. Uh, because as it happens, a lot of people are kind of going it alone at, at a lot of companies, you know, for, I mean, we can get into it, uh, but the, the, you know, the high level is that the way we have made games for so long is very much from a single player, very limited, very entrenched sort of mindset for how games are made. And this is very much a frontier and a new way of thinking about games. And so we wanted to be able to come together and build up those resources and then share it back to, to the industry. Because, you know, at the end of the day, a rising tide floats all boats. And the intent is not for us to have competitive advantage around the health and wellness of a community. These are things that should be a matter of course for developers. And so that initial call out ended up with, with I think, 25 different companies were represented. And we grew from there um, phenomenally. And of course, with the pandemic and a lot more focus being on, on games and games growing a ton over the last couple of years, uh, we've grown quite a bit as well since then. Um, to your question about like how to think about this for, for an indie game like Killer Queen Black, I mean, with every game, you have to look at the risks and opportunities. You have to understand the the audience that's going to play the game, the profile of, of the game itself, like what are the friction points? Where are the spaces where things can go wrong between players? Um, where are there necessary and unnecessary interaction points? You know, I think that if you 
take into account a lack of, of trust between players in a highly competitive environment where maybe they're just coming off of a loss and you throw those in a voice channel together, that's not going to go very well, you know? And that's not to say, oh, well, we should ban voice everywhere, but it does mean that we, we have a unique perspective on the game and how it's played, enough so that we can make different decisions about what we're exposing players to and how we're setting them up for for success and so we can say things like maybe there's no voice chat here or maybe you know we look for other ways to bring about reciprocity and positive interactions that start to to build up that background of of trust by having high fives in the game or other means of, of interaction and so for killer queen you know i think it's it's always difficult with a game that's that's already out there and as we know game development is incredibly difficult the margins are tight it's not always feasible uh, or even you know reasonable from from many perspectives to be investing in some major systems here but i think you know asking questions like what is the nature of the interaction do players have good means to find each other? You know, rethinking what matchmaking means and what it means to find compatible players. Are there ways to report other players and what does that mean? Do you have a means to respond to those reports and build that trust up with, with players? So I think there's a lot of things you can dig into, but I'm very conscientious of the limits of, of opportunity sometimes faced by developers, despite best intentions and, and motivations to, to get in there and do better. Yeah, and as as we know in the world of of agile, you can start developing something with the uh, the best intentions and making your best guess about how players are going to interact and anticipating that putting certain tools in place, only to find that the players are start doing something that you completely didn't even think about. And on limited resources, how do you pivot to address that? That's quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, you have to you have to be able to convince your stakeholders or your C-suite that this is a worthwhile investment. And it, even the strongest moral alignment in, well, we want everyone to get along online and and you know, everyone to feel safe and and welcome in these spaces aren't necessarily a match for not knowing what to do or not having the resources to do anything about it. And so you see a lot of compromises despite good intentions as a result. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Blake, I, I'm sure you agree with me that, you know, we've gotten to know Jackie and the LiquidBit team uh, quite a bit over the last little while since we started the Stinger Bee League. And they they are, for me, an example of a great team that uh, is really well-intentioned in terms of wanting to grow their player base and have good tools available for their, their players. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, thinking about some of the things they have, you know, they've they've integrated voice chat, but they also have non voice tools in there. Like I, I you know, I think I make use of the, you know, flash the snail or flash the gates or flash the berries more often than I do with voice communication during a game. Right. Yeah. yeah, of course, the, the emotes as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they're they're not, you know, defined text. I mean, there's a lot of games out there that, uh, you know, very early on, early emotes were, were English words. Mm -hmm. huh. And, you know, LiquidBit abstracted from that. And I, I'm sure other game studios are abstracting from that as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at look at Apex Legends and the way they've pushed the bar with their ping system. I think thinking beyond just oh, let's throw voice in and we've solved it, but understanding that there's there's risks that come with voice that aren't just mistreatment. You know, that include things like broader accessibility that uh, allow people to play together that don't necessarily speak the same language or that maybe aren't so strong at speaking at the same time as they're playing, you know? So I think there's there's a lot of really good reason to invest in a broader suite of, of communication tools that are going to 
increase the likelihood that players are having better, higher quality interactions, which then in turn means that players are going to go into the next game feeling better. And overall, the community then can start to to holistically improve because fundamentally at the basic unit of communication, things are getting better. So Kimberly, you've talked about a number of things. So may I call you Kimberly? I, I, I know I should be calling you Dr. Vol, but may I call you Kimberly? <laughs> sure, sure. Dr. I've Kimberly, only been doing I don't it for know. 30 years. I, I, I've really I've really tried here and I just can't I just can't break out of that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's it's tough. I'll allow it since it is, you know, my name. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So there have you you touched on a number of, of points that I, I think come together in a certain spot. You've touched on uh, I think you've you've alluded to the obligations of a developer in uh, in thinking about how their players are going to interact. You've talked about the player base, and you've talked about uh, you know developers wanting to create a welcoming environment for their players, and that for me alludes back to something that Jackie from Liquidbit uh, said in an interview that we did with her uh, a couple of months ago. And it, it arose while we were talking about the challenges of growing a player base for an indie esports game like Killer Queen Black, specifically for Killer Queen Black. And it was a great, it was a great interview and she had a lot of great things to say about it. And there was one thing she said that really caught my attention, give new players a chance to learn to love the game. That's that must be a very challenging one for the development team to tackle. Yeah, it's it's very challenging, and it's also there's only so much control that you have. I could spend hours pining over how to get everybody on the equal playing field, you know, but that's just that's just not our job. You know, we make games, and that's just not our job. We make games now. Now, now, listen. We know Jackie, and. We know that that was not a statement that was an abdication of uh, hers or any developer's responsibility. Like Liquidbit is very much engaged in their community. They they really, really are. But when I abstracted it from the specific to the general, it did raise a, sort of a philosophical question for me. What sort of obligation does a developer have to the growth and development of their player base? And I, I wonder what sort of thoughts you have on, on that, given everything we've talked about in the you know developers needing to put tools into place. Like where where is where does the responsibility of making games and the responsibility of of the community where does that overlap? Where does it start and end? Yeah, that's such an interesting question and such a difficult one. You know, I think. We've evolved a long way from the box products of your, you know, where your responsibility arguably ended at content. You know, today we're faced with live games as a service and community formation and management and esports. And, you know, I think zooming out, it's fair to say that games are very much a part of the fabric of society. And I think it's understandable how for a lot of developers, that's a pretty that's a pretty big change. That's a pretty big ask to go from saying, you know, you've shipped something, you put the box on the shelf and, you know, it's effectively a toy. People could take it off the shelf and play with it or not, but you know, your responsibility has ended with the shipping of that product and someone purchasing it. But with thing games continuing to have these very rich lives where they're they're uh, you know we're playing with each other there's full huge scale in some cases communities within the spaces of of these games that responsibility has has shifted you know but it's not it's not solely the responsibility of of the developer there's a lot that we do around the game that that drives behavior and so i think 
it's it's less about pointing fingers at developers and saying you need to do more. Do developers need to do more? Yes, absolutely. But we all need to do more. You know, we need to do a better job of understanding that that shared responsibility around the game ecosystem, not just as developers, as players, as community members, as a society. You know, we need to work together to look beyond not just the punitive. You know, it's there's tons of research that tells us that just slapping someone's wrist isn't enough to drive sustained healthy community behaviors. You know, we need to make choices that foster those healthier interactions. We need education that teaches us how to be, you know, as I said earlier, more resilient, more respectful online, and to really kind of imbue the way we think about games with a much more almost public health perspective. And I say that carefully because, of course, we also have a long history of like violence in video games and, oh my gosh, they are the debasement of society and everything is terrible and lock up your children. But the reality is games are very rich, rewarding, social, important spaces, and they deserve the same level of responsibility that we treat other spaces where we gather as human beings. And so I think that's that's the bit flip that needs to happen. That's where I think we need to start thinking, not just like, oh gosh, you know, it's all on us and we don't know what we're going to do as developers, but what opportunity do we have as developers, given our unique position, given our skills? How do we contribute to better online online spaces? And this doesn't apply to every game, of course, right? If you're a tiny little single player downloadable indie game with no online component, Sure, I'm there's yes, there's opportunities. I don't mean to shut down anyone in in that capacity, but no one's going to be coming knocking on your door saying, "Hey, did you, you know, do you know the the number of of uses of the N-word in your game is is escalating, you know, right? Like those things are not going to take place there. Um, but those things are happening and far worse things in in games. And it's not it's not uh you know, I would I would be remiss to to suggest that this was the dominant way things are going in games. It's actually a fairly small percentage of legitimate bad actors in a game. So by bad actors, in that case, I mean people who show up in a game with the intent to disrupt or or do harm. It's a tiny, tiny percentage. And so we need to we need to focus on that. We need there's a there's a high level of responsibility there for all developers where that sort of behavior can emerge, where we need to be making sure we're creating safe spaces and and creating spaces where players can let us know what's happening and that we can we can serve them. And there's a lot of stuff we could get into there about why that's challenging. But I think that is a very strong, to your question about like, where do you draw the line of obligation or responsibility? That's a very strong, um, strong place to draw it. But then there's also the, the broader opportunity space of what we do nonetheless see a lot of is a lot of negativity. We see a lot of unwelcoming behaviors of, of people that, you know, just pop into a game and say hello, and they're met with F you or people that like, you know, basically lose their head on others who make a mistake in a game or other people who show up and they're they're just being really disruptive and people are understandably frustrated with this experience like there's a lot that's a big meaty thorny space and there's a lot of that happening and i think that opportunity space is uh, it's not unrelated to the first one because certainly there's an escalation path that can come from things going wrong in the game that lead to a breakdown of resiliency and patience, et cetera, that can lead to someone saying something they maybe regret and then, you know, so on and so forth. But I think certainly that atmosphere of of negativity and lack of respect and, you know, we can't hide behind like, oh, that's just trash talk. That's just what games are like, you know. 
trash talk is the sort of thing that you can have between people that know each other really well, that have a foundation of care and respect for one another already in place. So they're not going to take that personally. But how can you jump into a game of strangers and know that that's what you're facing? Like you can't, you absolutely can't. And so I think it's not to say that we need to, to, uh, Put the kibosh on any kind of ribbing or to say to to friends who like to play a certain way that you can't play the way that you like to play or talk the way that you like to talk i mean we can draw some lines right like hate and harassment never okay but i think we can we can be more thoughtful about how we group people together about creating spaces that you know you're not going to put your kids in a space that's got a whole bunch of swearing for example i mean that's a really easy example but what if i just had more agency and opportunity over the kinds of gaming communities i get to play with and what if as a developer i took more responsibility for finding ways to make that happen on behalf of, of players so i think you know it is a big messy space i think we can draw strong lines in the sand as far as no hate no harassment Trust and safety are fundamental things that every player has the right to demand of us as developers. And, you know, we we will do our very best knowing that there are, in fact, limits to what we can do. But that investment, like we can't hide behind, like, well, what do we do? I don't know. There's a lot we know we can do today. And that is a space where we should be continuing to invest. But we should be thinking about it holistically from a community perspective as well. It is not solely the developer's responsibility. You know, if we'd had this conversation two years ago, I would have just been I would have just thought it's something that exists solely within the realm of of games and the and the space of of online games but let's face it if you ex- if you extract all the references to video games and developers in everything you just said and you toss in you know covid and vaccinations and you know the the you know there's only a few bad actors out there and uh bits and and all those challenges like like this is really a very human issue isn't it Absolutely. This is fundamentally a human issue. This is humans trying to coexist in digital spaces when we have all of our years of evolution that have been uh, focused on what it means to interact face to face, you know, and, and in more direct capacities. You know, we in digital spaces, we lose our body language. We lose so many things that are critical for us building these these connections. And we've just really not stopped to ask, well, how do we bring those into our digital spaces? I mean, we are now, and but that's the catch-up game that we're playing. You know, it was, we're like, well, we throw people into a game, that's, that's, that's it. That's the, the problem we're trying to solve is literally how do I connect two people or two people plus in a game? Not how do I actually think about the quality of the experience that they're having together? You know, we're very good at thinking about single player experiences. And I, I would argue as a designer that we bring that single player mentality into our multiplayer games. We're not thinking about really? to, to reuse that quote of how do you play well together? We think about strategy, we think about team composition, but we don't think about that that glue between people of how we interact successfully. We don't think about how people feel in the game. Do they feel supported? Do they, you know, why are they getting frustrated? Are we doing things to mitigate that frustration? Are we teaching people that in spite of these limitations of communication in digital spaces, are we teaching them how to communicate more effectively given those limitations? You know, those are all, I think, rich opportunity spaces that are are how we start to think about the playing together as multiple players, the multiple minds in a single game versus uh, I think the single player mentality, which is just drop the player in, except we're dropping multiple people in. So, and, and I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to go along with this sort of line of, of discussion and questioning, but do you see parallels between the 
uh, like like I think I feel like you're you're expressing that the player base has an obligation themselves to creating uh to collectively creating safe spaces and 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 good playing opportunities do you feel or do you see any parallels between that and the messaging that uh has been around during the pandemic around you know everyone's uh collective responsibility to mask collective responsibility to get vaccinations is is it is it again is it that similar you know human collective responsibility yeah, it's it's how we get along well in groups. Humans don't do very well at scale, you know, and a lot of times games are gaming communities are pushing us beyond the scales at which we we do well. I mean, that's that's evidenced by think about what it's like to to hang out with your significant other or a close friend or a small group of friends versus what it feels like to hang out with with a group of 10 people or or a group of 100 or beyond, right? I mean, we start to lose those aspects of relatability and similarity and things that are greasing the wheels of those of those interactions. And so it's uh, because of those different sorts of, of breakdowns, we need to create structures and systems of compromise and frameworks that allow us to operate at these bigger at these bigger scales. And that's fundamentally what, what society really is, you know. And so it's when we're talking about masking or, or vaccinating or, or all of these different things. And, you know, there's there's, as we all know, there's pushback about freedom and personal rights, etc. I mean, I think there's we all have to give a little in order to be part of a successful society we all have to compromise you know and i know for different people the the, the feeling of how much we are compromised may vary but ultimately society only works when we're all compromising a little bit we're agreeing to abide by these rules for a greater good and you can debate what that greater good is and what those rules should be and all of that but it doesn't change that it's it's how we interact well together as as people and it doesn't change that that's the same formula in the context of of a game so you know game developers can do uh you know they can do everything in their power to improve the quality of of communications but if players are showing up and being hateful and harassing and just you know terrible to one another then there comes a point at which the only thing the developer can do is shut down that avenue of, of communication. And I think that's extreme. I think there's a lot of things that we can do. But that's what I mean when I say there is that shared responsibility is right now, I think we talk too much about this as if it is solely the developer's responsibility. And I, I don't want to diminish that responsibility. As I said earlier, there's very much a huge role for them to play. But when we just focus on the developer, then we miss the opportunity to be, to be empowering caregivers, teachers, uh, parents, psychologists, et cetera, to be having the sorts of conversations that we need to be having with our children, for example, who are now growing up and into this digital age, to give them the the skills, not just of, of you know, as we've been talking about, as resiliency and how to communicate effectively online and what does it mean to be respectful online, you know, imbuing those values from a very young age, but also, you know, just because we touch all of this stuff in our, our work as the Fair Play Alliance, also things like are our kids coming to their, their caregivers when they encounter something online that is uncomfortable or when someone treats them poorly? Because if they're not having those conversations and we're missing those teachable moments where we can be setting a better example, we can be giving them guidance on how to, how to behave and where we can intervene and say, actually, what you just experienced was not okay and then, and then help them and in turn help developers by feeding that information back into the system so that we know these things are transpiring and can improve our ability to detect these things and, and intervene before people you know get get hurt that's a lot to think about kimberly i'm gonna i'm gonna come i'm gonna go uh i'm gonna go uh outside the box here with uh with this this question but 
it, you know, if you were asked for advice uh, to give to a league like the Stinger B League or or the there's a larger Killer Queen Black League out there called B Game League and these are player these are like organized player communities that are very much interested in the game what would you say to them about either their their obligation their responsibility or even their opportunity what what can they do what can these communities do given the opportunity to collectively organize themselves to really espouse some of the principles of the fair play alliance yeah what a what a great question i you know there's there's a lot of opportunities i think for for these communities for players in general i mean i think there's the individual responsibility of of you know who you bring to the match when you're playing and how you conduct yourselves around others and knowing for example if you have a tendency to rage after a loss i mean we're only human right we're not we're not trying to demonize anyone here necessarily uh, but rather say what can we do to recognize our own limits and opportunities for personal improvement and then on the community side particularly for community leaders i think it, thinking about the values that we want to see in games and game spaces you know i think where where there's opportunity there you know whether it's a a, a physical location where people are getting together to to play or it's a, a remote online experience taking the time to really think about the values and expressing that in a code of conduct you know a code of conduct where i think there is as much as you can muster clarity on what good and bad looks like on what those expectations are oftentimes you know a lot of things break down because people don't understand what's expected of them they might get lured into certain types of behavior because they feel like that's how they belong they've heard this in other places and so they just continue to replicate that behavior in an effort to feel like they they belong to that community or, or to be understood and taken in by a community you know i mean it's another fundamental human aspect that of, of belonging and so I think making it very clear what those expectations are uh, th have thinking through the consequences for violations of, of those behaviors I mean th that's where it gets very difficult right I mean it's asking it's asking a lot of people when someone has overstepped that line to step in and actually you know do something about that behavior whether it is a, a warning a some sort of sanction an exit of the community but I think we need people who are prepared to do that. And on the flip side, we need to be more vocal and outspoken about those values, about what good looks like, about what we expect. You know, all too often, I think we we tend to celebrate and lift up those folks who are uh, who are being negative, who are setting poor examples, because you know, I don't know, it's flashier and it's funny and it's all of these different things. But where are we? You know, we need to we need to do more to say no to that sort of behavior. We need to lift up the voices we're not hearing, the folks that are, you know, bringing their putting their best foot forward, you know, bringing their best selves to every game, who are celebrating each other, who are bastions of of inclusivity and celebrating diversity and who are doing that well. Those are the voices that we need to lift up as high as possible, you know, with their consent, of course. But, you know, that's where we really need to invest and we need to stop giving money and platforms to those who are building their platforms on on, you know, not necessarily hate in some cases, sure, but but negativity and shooting each other down and setting those examples that then create the feedback loop of the next generation is picking those things up and bringing them into the community and so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot of, of opportunities there. And, you know, for just to extend that a bit for developers, I think also 
thinking about how do you operationalize these values within your own studios. You know, I, without going into too much detail, because there's been a lot of this in the media, and you know, this—that's a whole other—it's a whole other podcast. But <laughs> you know, there's, there's—it's very difficult for a developer to try to espouse and support the values that they want to see in the game when they're not able to live by those in their own place. And so, I think part of it in all of us <laughs> is looking very carefully at how we're conducting ourselves within our workspaces and within our communities and asking ourselves, are we doing our part to uphold those values and looking within and starting there? Uh, Because I think there's a lot of work to be done there. You know, you you said it, if you're going to talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think this this leads to my last question. I, I feel I feel that to some extent you've already touched on it, but I mean, as long as I've I've known you, Kimberly, you've you've been a video game visionary. Uh, you've really you've never shied away from dreaming big about what video games of the future could be. But I don't think either you or I or or anyone you know twenty thirty years ago could have uh, imagined the sorts of social challenges that we're now we're now seeing today and you know the fair play alliance like i i'll give full props to the fair play alliance for being a true community of practice because i've seen so many communities of practice that just get together and talk which is great but fair play alliance actually produces tools and uh, and references for developers uh, to use, and so I, I wanted—I did want to ask you about tools, but I, I'm just going to—you know—you've addressed that to some degree. I, what I want to ask now, just to close out, is what do you see the future looking like with respect to? what we've been discussing here around the developer player relationship and the need for uh, for shared responsibility where is that you know we've got some ideas about where that could go right now where is it going to be in the future and where do you think the answers are going to to lie uh, is it is it going to be enough can can just players and developers and studios can can they jointly you know, is there is there enough strength there to overcome some of these issues now, or will there be a need to reach out beyond that? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, a big part of what we're trying to do with the FPA is build up a knowledge base and approaches and and share that with the industry. You know, as I I alluded to earlier, oftentimes there's you know the margins are so tight in game development, it doesn't leave a lot of space for innovation, and the innovation that does happen is often instead focused on things like mechanics and and actual gameplay because you know you can see how we would get there, right? We're game developers. Let's let's make sure that we're innovating in and around the, the games space. Uh, so I think that the the challenge then is, well, where does this work happen? How do we actually collate and circulate and create this this work? And that's largely the responsibility that we're, we're undertaking. We're creating that space and bringing together the best minds in the industry and beyond who are working in this area to create these resources and then free of charge, sharing them back. We do a ton of consulting with companies, um, again, for free, uh, because uh, you know at the end of the day, it's not about, we're trying to break down barriers and we're trying to do everything that we can to change how games are made and if we can put tools in the hands of developers that are addressing these issues that are as good or as better as what they've been historically using then that starts to break down these these barriers 
And I think I said this earlier, but, you know, accountability comes via empowerment. You know, you can't just point your finger at someone and say, you've got to do this if they have no means to do that. And we can come up with all sorts of, of criticisms for like, well, they should have seen this coming. They should have done this, et cetera, et cetera. And none of that's relevant going forward right now. What matters is if we don't have the tools and understanding to be able to make a difference in this space, then we can't be held accountable. So let's close that gap. You know, let's let's share the knowledge and how we're creating these healthier environments and fostering positive interactions through our design choices and how we're effectively detecting and addressing disruptive and harmful behavior. Like even, you know, we've pushed hard to move away from the term toxicity because it's such a big, messy term that what does it mean? Like how does one measure toxicity? It's so many things. So just pushing the state of the language so that we're equipped with that when it comes time to measuring things and talking about this. But to your, to your broader question, we also need to ensure that lawmakers and, and legislators and caregivers actually understand games and the role that they play in society, along with the efforts already underway. There's some incredible people in and around the industry who are working very hard in this space. And I think just to, just to kind of tie a bow around it, you know, games are not inherently dangerous, no more than going to a park is, right? We've rather extended the spaces in which we live and share our lives together into the digital. And we need to treat that with the same level of care, investment, and support. And that's on all of us, I think, as a society. Kimberly, you've sure, given sure. us a lot to think about here for and for our audience, be they players or developers or community organizers. You've, re you've really gotten the point home I, I think that it really boils down to shared responsibility we've all got to we've all got to walk the walk i mean games are awesome we're here because we love video games we're here because games have the power to to pull people together across cultures and and every manner of divide games are an incredible opportunity for us i think to to reflect on what it means to be human you know the good the bad and the ugly but i think you know more importantly the opportunity for us to i think take society further and, and do so with our eyes open and with, with care in how we are setting up the next generation for, for this digital world. Beautiful. My goodness. So cool. This is, it's just, it's just so fascinating to me that this work is being done. I mean, when, once, once you put it out there, it's like, okay, well, of course, this is a space that needs to, to have a stuff. I just hadn't even really. Yeah, it's it's a lot, and I'm really glad that there's so many people today working in this in this space, and I'm I'm grateful for all of them and and all of the support that we have gotten because I think this is really important. You know, I my hope is that none of us ever have to feel afraid going into a gaming space because of of who we are and how we identify, but that in a future, you know, organizations like the FPA will will not be necessary. This will just be how we think about games and what how we define the success criteria for games, and we'll have gotten so much better at making these these spaces the the truly wonderful spaces we know they can be what a great world that will be the day it happens and i like to believe we can get there me too <laughs> yeah kimberly thank you so much for coming on to the buzzcast and sharing with us Oh, thank you for having me. It's been awesome. Great questions. Thank you, Kimberly. As a small token of our appreciation, uh, we'd like to leave you with this gift of our eternal thanks and gratitude, which I know is kind of a bit of a ripoff because, you know, you've already got half of that from me already, and now I'm just throwing <laughs> Blake's into it. So, <laughs> but this well, is what better. happens when you're even not commercial. Better. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I receive it uh, with deep appreciation. <laughs> All right. Well, Blake, I think it's time for us to wrap up. How about a big thank you to all of our listeners? Thank you, listeners. Uh, we really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed this one. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in once again to the Buzzcast. And we hope you'll tune in again next week. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye-bye.
The Buzzcast is a non-commercial podcast and has no official affiliation with Killer Queen Black, its publishers, distributors, or developers. The Buzzcast theme song is Beasting by the band Low Doses and is used under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.